Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. doing good I have a little bit of a crispy shoulders because I was outside and I never I can't tell you the last time I sunburned it might have been three years ago wow I, I have um crispy shoulders too but that's pretty typical for me anytime I spend any time outside really <laughs> yeah <laughs> unfortunately I'm trying to be really good with the sunscreen so yeah. it's basically a lapse in judgment if it happens but it's hard for me to find that happy tan place yeah. Well, my problem is, is I just don't wear sunscreen. I know. I know. Not a good idea, but I have darker skin, so it doesn't, I honestly don't burn. The only place I burn is on my nose. And I always joke that I have my grandpa's nose. <laughs> uh, and anyways, because it's the only place on my body that I burn. But today's the, the sun, the rays were very hot today. It was really hot today. It's yeah. been really hot all week. Yeah, it has. We're in LA, people. My husband is the same as you. He's like, I don't need suntan. I don't need sunscreen. Like, yeah. where's the oil? And I'm like, mm-mm. I know. I'll, I guess I'll let you get away with not wearing sunscreen, like, over and over again if we're outside for five hours. But I will not let you put oil on. <laughs> I know. I know. And I have a baby. I have one child who is, like, darker skinned like myself and then one child who is fair skinned. And so, you know, you got to protect that skin, man. Either way, honestly, it doesn't matter if you have more melanin in your skin. You really still should be wearing sunscreen. So that's on me as well. Anyways, but. Well, I say even if it's just like cosmetic, you know, like even if you're less likely based on the fact that you have darker skin to burn and then maybe get, I don't know, skin cancer. Don't quote me on that. I do not know that to be true in any way, shape or form. No, you can get it no matter what. But you can still get wrinkly. That's true. You can. And I don't want to be wrinkler, wrinkly. I don't want to get wrinkles. <laughs> Sorry. That's just a little taste on what we're talking about today. Hi, everybody. I'm Vanya. I'm the Rom. Hi, I'm Avrin, and I'm the crime. And this is Rom Crime. This is our true crime comedy podcast that has romantic songs. Okay, so they're not all romantic, but you know what? Some of them are. Totally. And music at its essence, you know, is a beautiful expression of love. So I like that. Thank you. I was like on this one. I was like, um, 
what am I going to say here? But that's what was in my heart. And I just, I sang it out for you, Abby. I sang it, I love it. right out. I love um, it, love it, love it. Can I just tell you, I just want to take a second and say that I love your mom. This is a sidetrack, but I just love her so much. I love her too. I'm glad that you love her. She loves yeah. you. Yeah. She calls I'm... me every week. We have a debrief <laughs> about our episode and she adores you. Uh, I just, I mean, I love her too. I'm like, if she lived here, we would just have her on once a month to give a, we need a Betsy debrief. I think we should maybe do that. Damn, girls. I was like, think, is there a way Bets, to do that? I don't know. Betsy, would you come on? Like, if we could figure out how to mic you up and loop you in, would you? I think she'd do it. Oh, I think God. she'd do it. Okay, well, we'll find out because I think that'd be so, so fun. Um, I think that'd okay. be amazing. So I, I just... You know, you could be listening to this podcast like in a year from now or six years from now, finding your way to this rom crime podcast and being like, what are they talking about? Okay, so I just want to prep because or I just want to not prep. I want to give a little context of last week. We did miss last week. Honestly, we it uh, today we're recording. It is June. Uh, what is it? 12th? I think it's the 12th yeah, or the June, 11th. June 11th, 2020. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd was uh, an African-American man, a black man in the United States, was publicly executed by a police officer. And so our country is in upheaval, as we should be. People are protesting. So last week, we were trying to muster a story and get it together. But honestly, like both of us felt we wanted to be supporting Black Lives Matter. We wanted to be out and about doing that kind of thing. I mean, as as much as we could be out and about with the COVID-19, which is also a thing we're dealing with right now. Hi, everybody. Listening to this in 2025. I love it. I love that I think that someone's just going to find this podcast in, uh, in like They might, though. And I think years. it's important to like provide context because you're right. Like We really thought about coming out with the you know an episode and I think that what became clear to both you and I is that last week, and really for the foreseeable future, it's more important to listen than to talk. Yeah. And so while, of course, we're going to continue to do our podcast because we love doing it, it brings us joy, it lets us connect with each other in this strange time when we have to stay far apart from everyone and yeah. and things feel so uncertain, but... I think that was, you know, that was our main motivating factor was that it was not a time to come on here and be our our delightful, funny, wonderful selves um, <laughs> and talk about crime. Yeah. When there was something so significant going on that really required that white people stop talking and start listening. So yeah. that is why we were gone last week, if you did wonder. And yep. we're back this week, but we're still carrying those same thoughts and feelings and lessons that were going to continue learning for from now until everything is right in the world yeah um with us uh this week's uh episode this week is um we've actually this was one Avrin, that you and i talked about doing in the beginning like in our first because yeah. i love i let i personally like anybody famous just because it's so fascinating um but uh yeah we're doing tina and ike turner yes and it's so interesting because we did talk about this in the beginning, and I do find, because if you're new to this podcast, Vanya loves romantic comedies, yes, funny, light bunny rabbits, yes, I and do. Avrin really, really likes to fall asleep watching Forensic Files and Law & Order SVU <laughs> and like Dateline. 
So like that's where we're coming at. So we, but we are very, very, very close friends and we enjoy the hell out of each other. And even though like my proclivity is towards the dark when it comes to like what I consume, I guess, and Vanya's is more towards the light. That's where the concept of rom crime came from. And so I have noticed that you definitely seem way more into it anytime we cover. Yeah. A famous person story. I know. Why is that? It's so true. I'm like, I sent her, um, our, you know, we took that week last week off and I was like, I couldn't sleep because I was stressed. Life is scary. And how do, and I've been trying to talk to a six-year-old about racism and, and all of the, the weight that we are living right now. Uh, all week, and I, I just like jacked. I was like, <laughs> not jacked. Is jacked the right word? <laughs> anyway, we're all hopped up. I was hopped up. I couldn't sleep, so I was, I was like searching on the web. I'm like, um, just searching murder, but <laughs> the ones that I was like enjoying were the famous ones. It's true. Like I really want to do Selena one day because I love her. So I'm down, much. Oh my God. and I also just want to play all of her songs. <laughs> I know, I know. So, but I also uh, am obsessed with Tina Turner, so I'm very excited that yes. we're doing this. I love her so, so much. Before we jump into the story, Vanya, I oh, just yeah. have a, a question in regards to Tina Turner. Do you have a favorite Tina Turner song? And if so, what is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, like, yeah. when did you discover Tina Turner? Okay, this is very... Actually, I'm so glad you asked that question. So, um, I am an 80s child, okay? And my... I remember growing up, you know, my parents, my dad especially, loved music, and he always loved, like, we had, you know, he, I don't know, he loved all of the pop music and stuff like that, and my dad, you know, was born not in this country, and so, like, it's just, I love my dad so much, but he was, like, really into, like, stereo equipment and all this stuff, so we had this, like, huge stereo, like, thing that had, like, eight parts to it. Anyways, my, that, it actually has nothing to do with that, but we, we would want, occasionally we would get MTV, on cable so sometimes we would have it and then as soon as my mom would see something like inappropriate we would it would be taken off and anyways but I remember seeing it and I don't I honestly must have been like maybe six years old and I remember watching the video of private dancer I'll be your private dancer dancer for money anyways I remember watching that and thinking "Ooh, the drama in this video like what is this and I also think remember thinking even at that young of an age I had like a really heavy or uh, husky voice and I remember thinking oh look it's a lady with a husky voice (laughs) with the best husky voice yeah so of course to you I would say that that was my first god bless um I would say that that's my first like no knowledge of her but my actual favorite song is the song from Thunderdome I, I mean, I honestly, I like anything she sings, but it's just so dramatic, you know? She's like, we don't need another hero. And then the drums come yes. like, boom. Anyways, I'm going to watch that tonight, I think. Yeah. Thunderdome? Though, yeah, Thunderdome. Even though Mel Gibson is a racist asshole, but... Um, but she's so cool in it, and the the um, I talk a lot about costume. The costumes are amazing in it. It's like Mad Max... Thunderdome something, Return to Thunder. I, I actually don't know. Sorry. But yeah. What about you, Ev? <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. I think it was Mad Max Thunderdome or Return oh, to good. Thunderdome. <laughs> it was a Mad Max film. Um, my very 
like the first time I remember listening to Tina Turner sing, and I can't remember exactly what year it was, but I know I was in elementary school. So the movie What's Love Got to Do With It came mm. out. And all of my Angela parents, Bassett, right? Yes, Angela Bassett, Lawrence Fishburne. I had to stop myself from watching it because then I was just going to tell everyone the story of the movie (laughs) instead of like the story of the story. Um, But I remembered that not only was like my mom was talking about it and her friends were all talking about it. And I wanted to see it so bad because everyone was talking about it. And my mom Mm -hmm. was like, you can't. It's too grown up. But she had the soundtrack and very quickly in my childhood, our car, the kind of constant soundtrack was like Amy Grant music. Yeah. And it switched over to the soundtrack from What's Love Got to Do With It. And if I'm being honest, I loved every fucking song. Yes. In, this, in the soundtrack. But if I had to pick a favorite, and my favorite Tina Turner song as I grew up and like got to learn more of her music mm-hmm. is... Um, has changed from when I was young, but my very fa- oh. favorite Tina Turner song when I was young was Nutbush City Limits. <gasps> because I love how she was like, Nutbush! And she would do this like squeak scream thing. They call it Nutbush. Nutbush City Limits. And it was just like fun and catchy and dancey. Oh, fun. So that was my very favorite Tina Turner song when I was young. And I yeah. was introduced to her via the soundtrack from the movie of her life starring Angela Bassett. Oh my God, so cool. Um, yeah, I, and- I also love Mr. Mr. Mama Rice, Xavier Rice saying, um, what's that one mountain high, uh, river, river deep, river deep mountain high, which, okay. Mm-hmm. I will spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah. That's my actual favorite Tina. Turner oh, song. sorry. Did I? I'm so oh, sorry. no, no, yeah. it's totally fine. It's, it's one of the greatest freaking epic songs of all time. And it's oh, worth. Oh, I love you, baby. So good. Baby, baby, baby. baby. I love that song. Um, that was Phil Spector. I'll get into that. Oh, really? He oh. produced that song and did all of the like um, musical arrangements. So like really? all of the instruments, that was all him. And there's a very, well, we'll get into it. Oh, but there's a very so famous good. story about her recording that song and him being like, that's not quite right. Do it again. That's not quite right. Do it again. And by the time she finally got it right, she'd ripped her top off because she was sweating so profusely that she could no longer like sing the song and move her body the way she needed to with the the construct of her shirt on what and the people that like witnessed this was all this in a in a you know a recording studio studio. yeah she had to take her top off and then she just sang it in her bra and she finally nailed it and that was the take that that she got it just how they wanted oh i'm so excited let's do this girl let's get into this story all right we're gonna just hop right in so i'm gonna start and give everybody a little bit of well i say a little bit when i'm like i have a novel here about the (laughs) about ike and tina turner but i'm gonna start off with the backstory of ike turner go so love it ike turner he was born in clarksdale mississippi on november 5th 1931 his mother beatrice was a seamstress and his father Izir, i think i'm saying that right it's either it's either it's either is there is was a baptist minister but ike's childhood was rough in fact one of his first memories was witnessing his father being violently beaten up by a white man named Bird Doggin and a bunch of his angry white cronies that showed up like gang style to the home of the Turners, grabbed his father, took him outside, and beat him to within an inch of his life. Now, allegedly, this was done because Izir was having an affair with 
bird doggin. Sorry, I can't like bird doggin doesn't just come out of my mouth naturally. I have to look at the words because <laughs> what? But was a, allegedly having an affair with bird doggin's girlfriend, and that's what was the impetus for beating him basically to death. And because wow. this was Mississippi in the 1930s, no hospital would allow Azir Turner to be admitted because he was a black man in 1930s in Mississippi. So basically what happened was a makeshift hospital tent was set up in the Turner's um, yard, and that is where Azir lived for three years until he finally succumbed to his injuries. So he was basically rendered like physically, and I think there was definitely like brain damage, and they kept him alive in this medical makeshift tent for three years before he finally died. And oh as, my God. And Ike Turner was five years old when his dad passed away. So that means it's one of his first memories. He would have been probably around two. And then at five, his dad finally died. But like he would go in and out of that tent to see his dad. Like that was what he knew of as his father. So that's fucked up shit. Oh, that's so crazy too. I've never even heard of uh, like, why wouldn't he be able to be inside? I, I... I mean, and I couldn't find any more information other than, so my information also, I guess, for everyone listening, I got it from Wikipedia, which we love. <laughs> and then from uh, Tina Turner's book, I, Tina. Yeah. That came yeah. out, I think, in 86. Gotcha. But he, gotcha. he definitely describes that being one of his first memories. So after his father passed away, um, his mother remarries a man named Philip Reese who Ike describes as an abusive alcoholic, somebody who would, like, beat him with uh, two-by-fours and stuff like that, and he was running <sighs> away from home constantly. But this, I thought, was a really interesting fact, and I'm cutting all the way to the end real quickly. But even though he described him in such a horrible way and said they had a horrible relationship, Ike actually took care of Philip Reese, moved him into one of the homes that he owned in St. Louis, took care of him until the day he died, even after his mother passed away. So he was still his father figure. He was still his father yeah. figure. Um, and it just keeps getting worse from there. So Ike also recounts being sexually abused as a child, beginning at the age of six, when one of the neighborhood women named Miss Boozy, which I wondered if that was her real name, Boozy, I don't know. But one of the neighborhood women, she was a middle-aged woman. Her name was Miss Boozy. She would invite him over to help her feed her chickens. And then she would take him to bed. And this started when he was six years old. Ew. And continued uh, daily for quite a while. And Ike had yet another sexual relationship with a middle-aged woman named Miss Reeney. And that took place before he was 12 years old. So Ew. although, yeah, right? Like some bad, bad shit was happening and I think that's never surprising, you know, because we're going to get into yeah. how flawed he was as a human being. And they often say so many times that victims of abuse become abusers themselves. And I think that right. is very evident in this because he also says when he's recounting these, like, basically seriously being sexually assaulted as a child, he says that he was never uh, traumatized by any of these experiences. But he does believe it's why all of his relationships were deeply entrenched in sex because sex equaled power to Ike. Mm. So by the time Ike uh, reached eighth grade, he quit school, and he got a job as an elevator operator at the Alcazar Hotel, which happened to be where the radio station, WROX, was located. 
and Ike would spend every chance he got watching DJ John Friskillo play records. So anytime he had a break, he would like run right down to where this radio station was and watch this DJ. And DJ Friskillo noticed Ike's enthusiasm for the music and for what he was doing and immediately put him to work. He uh, taught him the ins and outs of the control room. And soon, Ike, who, by the way, was like like 12. <laughs> wow, yeah. Well, eighth um, grade is... Well, eighth grade is... Yeah, I think what 12. Is that? I don't know. It depends well, I, well, on if no, you're I older think, or younger. Yeah, I was going to say, well, 11 years old. 11 is fifth. So six would be 12. Seven would be 13. Four, he might be 14, depending on what year he is. Okay. But anyways. I, I think I turned... 13 in eighth grade but I was 12 when it okay. started but I'm like one of those mm. people that was a year younger than everybody because of where my birthday yes. fell. Yep. so okay I don't know how old he was but he had just quit the eighth grade and shortly after being shown kind of how the control room worked Ike was actually left to play records for the radio station anytime DJ Friskillo wanted to take a coffee break and eventually Ike was offered a job as the late afternoon DJ on WROX and his show was called Jive Till Five so, inspired by all the records that he was playing, Ike taught himself piano and guitar by playing along to records. So he learned everything by ear. He didn't know how to read sheet wow. music. He just was a self-taught musician, and he was actually quite talented. So this is why I think I got the age wrong, because somewhere in Wikipedia it said by the time he was 13, but maybe he would have been a little bit older. But by the time he was a young teen, he had actually backed Sonny Boy Williamson II on piano when he would play like mm. shows he was playing for this like legit musician as a teenager and he was hanging out with musicians like duke ellington so he was in in the music scene he loved it and then as a teenager he joined a local rhythm ensemble that would eventually become the kings of rhythm which was an ensemble group led by ike and they would get regular airtime um, from their live sessions on wrox the radio station that he had worked for so in March of 1951, Ike Turner and his band, the King of Rhythm, right, the Kings of Rhythm, sorry, recorded the song Rocket 88, which is considered to be one of the first ever rock and roll recordings, like, in rock and roll music, one of the first ever. And I think this really? is like a fun little note just to give you, I haven't heard the song, but fun note about the song is Little Richard would use Ike's Rocket 88 piano intro almost note for note in his song Good Golly Miss Molly. So if you think about the what? piano part to Good Golly Miss Molly, that was actually yeah. Ike Turner's intro piano stuff into Rocket 88, which I thought was kind of cool. I was like, oh, now I know what it kind of sounds like. Yeah. So eventually, Ike, while still playing in various groups, um, he became a session musician, a production assistant, and a freelance talent scout. So he was like fully immersed in the um the Mississippi music scene. And mm. in 1954, while he was visiting his sister in St. Louis, he went to a nightclub at Ned Love. So Ned Love was the proprietor of the club. And it was in East St. Louis. And after meeting, Ned Love invited Ike to play with his band at the club anytime he wanted. And so then Ike basically like re-put together a reformed version of the Kings of Rhythm. And off they went. And it would be at the Manhattan Club in East St. Louis that Ike would meet a young woman named Anna Mae Bullock. Take it away, Vanya. 
Oh my goodness, guys. I get to do Tina, and I have to be honest, I get to do her backstory. Thank you, Jesus, that I didn't have to do Ike's backstory because the child abuse upsets me so. It's all very intentional, my love. I read up on both of them, and I was like, I'll take Ike. Good for you. Thank you. You do, Tina. I'm oh not trying God. to I'm not trying to traumatize you. <laughs> no, it's it's fine and I know I understand. I know that this happens and you know it happens, but it just it, it almost it does it almost traumatizes me as if it was somebody. Anyways, okay. So, the early years of Miss Tina Turner. Tina Turner was born Anime Bullock on November 26, 1939 in Nutbush, Tennessee. So, there's Nutbush City Nutbush. Limits. Which, by the way, that means that um, Tina Turner today is 81 years old. Just so, you, just what to put that. And she is alive and well right now. Well, she might not be well, but she's alive. You know, she's fine. She's alive and fine. Yes. Which I would describe myself the same. I'm kidding. Okay. So her parents were Floyd and Zelma Bullock. They were poor sharecroppers. Okay. So I had to be like, I don't know what that is. What's a sharecropper? Uh, what is the system known as sharecropping? Might you ask? Okay, let me tell you. Okay. So after the end of the American Civil War and the abolition, 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 geez, after the, and the abolition of slavery, many African-Americans in the rural South made a living by renting small plots of land from large landowners, pledging a percentage of their crops to the landowners at harvest. Landowners then provided sharecroppers with land, seeds, tool, clothing, and food. Charges for the supplies were deducted from the sharecroppers' portion of the harvest, leaving them with substantial debts to landowners in bad years. Sharecroppers would become caught in continual debt, especially during weak harvests. Once in debt, sharecroppers were forbidden by law to leave the landowner's property until their debt was paid off, effectively putting them in a state of slavery to the landowner. Finding themselves deeply enmeshed in that system of debt slavery and faced with limited opportunities to eliminate their debt, many farming families ran away or moved, like moved frequently in search of better employment opportunities. In response, landowners employed and armed riders to supervise and discipline the farmers working on their land. So I just think that's really just, I, I, when I was doing the research, I was like, holy shit, is this like our first, like, you know, police type system that was in place absolutely and or i think second that's, i don't know you know the, actually no the police i've been learning a lot because i've been trying to read and um i watched if for anyone out there that's looking for ways to educate yourself um the new jim crow is an excellent resource and then also ava duvernay's um documentary 13th yeah is an excellent resource but basically the police as we know them, like the concept of police was invented to police black people only, to stop them from escaping slavery, to bring them back to the people that owned them at the time. That is where the police comes from. So it only exists as we know it today. It's obviously changed technically. It's changed, you know, what its job is. But that's where the police came from, was a way to police black slaves. And then they would just make weird fucked up stupid laws that basically continue to enslave black people while saying they were free. Yeah. And so this is like another kind of one of those weird situations where it's just, yeah, just wanted to, I thought that was very interesting, especially what we're going through right now. Okay. So 
back to Tina. So Tina, a.k.a. Anna Mae, had two older sisters. And as young girls, she, she especially sang in the church choir. When she was 11, her mother, Zelma, left without warning, escaping from her abusive relationship with um, Tina's father, Floyd, and relocated to St. Louis in 1950. Two years after her mother left the family, her father married another woman and moved to Detroit in 1952. So Tina and her sisters were sent to live uh, with their super religious grandma in Tennessee as well. But I want to say, you know, she mentions, I was watching an interview with her. She's like, I was, I didn't, I wasn't raised by parents. So that's something she felt very abandoned. And she, she knew in her heart, she says that she knew that her mother never wanted her. She said that in her book, I, Tina, because, you know, she was the three third of, uh, you know, three kids and her father and mother didn't have a great relationship. And, you know, I just keep thinking about like birth control and, and things like that. Not that like we're so happy that Tina Turner exists in this world, but like if her mother had had the opportunity to be on birth control and not be, you know, not get pregnant, maybe she would right. have had a better life. I don't know. Anyways. Okay, so the something I love when so she's in high school now. She's um with her her religious grandma. I, she is she calls herself a tomboy, and I love this. So she was a high school athlete. I also was a high school athlete, and she she played basketball, female or you know women's basketball, and she also was a cheerleader, which doesn't surprise me because she's so, uh, you know she's so fit and like dances so well. And I know cheerleading back in like the fifties was not the same as it is now, but it's still, it was always a physical thing, you know? Oh yeah. That's like constant jumping up and down for mm-hmm. the duration of a sports game. And in, and gymnastics, if you can do it, you know, so God bless. I love it. When she was 16, her grandmother dies. Okay. And she goes to live with her mother in St. Louis. How crazy, right? She hasn't mm-hmm. been, I, I, I just can't imagine like my mom being able to just like leave me. I'm sure she feels I don't know, completely abandoned. They, I couldn't find a lot of information on like how their relationship was at this point, but you're right. This is when she starts going to the clubs. She goes to the clubs in um, um, St. Louis and East St. Louis is where she first saw Ike Turner perform with his band, the Kings of Rhythm at the Manhattan club. Um, he, she was so impressed by his talent saying that she almost went into a trance watching him play. And I think I'm going to let you take it from here. Did you? All right. And, Ooh la yeah. la. Yeah. So I will pick up now. We're going to talk about when Ike and Tina Turner's lives collided. So after seeing the Kings of Rhythm in 1957, Anna Mae, which I'm going to refer to her as Anna Mae until that change happens for this part of the story. Mm-hmm. So she will I, she'll be Anna Mae until she actually is Tina. So Anna Mae, after seeing him play asks Ike Turner if she could sing in his band. And he's like, yeah, I'll call you. But he never did. So (laughs) she kept going back to see him and watch him play at the club. And one night when the band was playing, Anna Mae managed to get a hold of the microphone. And she sang, You Know I Love You by B.B. King. And Ike was so impressed by her voice that he invited her to join the band and he gave her the stage name Little Anne. So in the beginning... Anna Mae describes her relationship with Ike as like brother and sister. They weren't really each other's type, but the way they communicated was through music, and that was magic. 
Ike and Anna Mae became inseparable as he taught her the ins and outs of the music business. Their closeness was not lost on Ike's wife at the time, Lorraine, who actually threatened Tina with a gun at one point Uh-oh. before before actually shooting herself. She did survive oh. that, but she basically threatened to kill Tina, didn't do it, and then locked herself in a bathroom and shot herself, but did survive. Oh, my God. So, and even though at this point there was absolutely nothing romantic going on between the two of them. However, that would eventually change. So one night after a show, while Lorraine was temporarily out of the picture, Tina slept in Ike's room. She was staying with him in his home. And she slept in his room that night because another musician had threatened to come into her room in the middle of the night and her room didn't have a lock on it. So she slept in Ike's room. They slept side by side that night. But the next morning when she woke up, Ike had began touching her and fooling around with her. And she didn't really think of him that way and thought, and this is a quote I wrote in quotes. It says that she thought, God, this is horrible. I can't do this. But she went ahead and did it, and from there it went on and on and on. And that's a direct Mm. quote from her book, I, Tina. So by 1960, Lorraine is back in the picture, but Anna Mae had become pregnant with Ike's baby. According to the book, I, Tina, she became his number one side piece, and this made her incredibly uncomfortable and sad, and it wasn't what she thought of when she thought of love and marriage and what she wanted her life to look like. So she moved out of Ike's house and she got her own small little house. And around the same time that she was moving out and being like, okay, I'm not going to be like the pregnant mistress that lives in the house. Ike is working on a song that is called A Fool in Love. It's a song he's written for an artist named Art Lassiter. But after an argument over money, and Ike was notoriously stingy with his money and like, you know, really controlling of it and very difficult to work with. So after an argument, Art Lasseter just doesn't show up to the recording studio to record A Fool in Love. And so Ike's just like, okay, anime, you're going to sing the vocals and we'll at least record a demo we can set out to people and hopefully we can get Art back. So the demo was sent out to basically tons, every producer in the book it says like every single record producer in America I don't know if that's true or not but that's what it said Mm -hmm. but only one producer of all of the producers they sent this demo to got back to Ike Henry Murray who was the founder of Sue Records in New York flew to St. Louis and signed Ike and the song with a $25,000 advance so this is in 1960 so $25,000 in 1960 is a little under $200,000 today Ooh, nice So that's like a pretty hefty chunk of change, right? Um, Let me find my spot. Okay, so he signs Ike and the song with a $25,000 advance and tells Ike if he was smart, he would turn his attention and priority into making anime a star because she is what made that song great and that he should not try to get some big-name artist to do it. Like, he should really try to turn her into something. So he decided that is what I'll do. She's mm-hmm. going to be his ticket to the big time. So at this point, he changed little Anne's stage name to Tina Turner. And it was Tina because it sounded like Sheena. And Ike had been and was probably until the day he died obsessed with Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. And so that's where he came up with Tina. It was alliterative and it sounded like Sheena, mm. Queen of the Jungle, which like he just loved that idea. 
So as this is all happening, Tina has decided that she does not want to be his number one side piece. She doesn't want to be in a romantic relationship with him at all. She wants to go back to the way things were before, and they want to, she wants to be music partners and friends. So she decided to tell him just that. And that was the first time that Ike beat Tina up. He grabbed a shoehorn, beat her, and then made her have sex with him. And that was the beginning of the fear that Ike would use to control Tina over the next, the next 16 years. Eventually, Lorraine would get sick of Ike's shenanigan and leave him for good, and Ike and Tina would marry. Although, according to Ike, he was still married to Lorraine when he married uh, Tina in Tijuana, Mexico in 1962, but I couldn't like figure out exactly what the truth of that was. Mm. Apparently, he was constantly marrying people and was still married to other people, so I don't know the legalities of that, really. So, at this point, they have formed the Ike and Tina Turner Review. That's like the name of their act, their band, and they take it on the road, and it is exhausting. It was described as a show that was either playing a gig or were traveling between gigs 365 days a year. They found success in those early days. So first there was the, um, sorry, let me remind them, A Fool in Love. That was their first success. They sold a million copies of that record. And then they had I Idolize You, Poor Fool, and It's Gonna Work Out, which was the duo's second million-plus selling record and got them their first Grammy nomination. So publicly, seem, things seemed to be going incredibly well. But privately, Tina was constantly abused at the hands of Ike, along with being humiliated by his not-so-secret love affairs. In 1965, Music producer Phil Spector had seen Tina and Ike on the big TNT show, and he was so impressed by Tina that he asked if he could produce a song with and for her. Ike was not invited to be a part of this song, but since Spector paid handsomely, Ike agreed to let Tina do the record. And this is, of course, when my personal favorite Tina Turner song came to be, River yes. Deep, Mountain High. When I was a little girl, I had a rag doll. It's so good. It's so epic. So it's this epic. Oh, this is how I describe it. I was like, it's an epic wall of sound that only a voice like Tina's could penetrate. The music is so loud and so big, but her voice is bigger and mm. better. And it was a flop. What? Yeah. In the United States, the song was critically panned and never really reached any impressive numbers on any kind of chart. And it was a huge disappointment to Phil Spector, who had been like number one hit after number one hit after number one hit, who really thought this was like the greatest masterpiece he'd ever created. Wow. But it was an absolute sensation in the UK and all across Europe. So this moment where Tina finally got to step away from the Ike and Tina Turner review and make this music with somebody new where she had input, where she discovered that she didn't just have to do things the way Ike wanted to do them, that she could, she was really like a beautiful artist in her own right, yeah. was a big shift for her and a big shift for them because they were still obviously a group. But Ike and Tina Turner, because of the success in Europe of the song, were invited to be the opening act for the Rolling Stones European tour. Oh, cool. So they, op they opened for the Rolling Stones. Like Mick Jagger was like, I think you guys are, you guys are, you guys are, you guys are amazing tour. And it was on this tour that Tina's profile would expand greatly. She would become an international sensation and a sex symbol because 
she did have the best legs in the world. Yeah. Her relationship with Ike, sorry, I'm not trying, that sounded like I was objectifying her, but that was the first time that really the world just was looking at her and not only saw like Mm -hmm. her fierce talent, but was like, she's hot and she's been with this guy who has made her feel like less than nothing since she was basically a, a child. See how many times Avril yeah. can say basically in describing this. Um, <laughs> but her star really rose and she became more, it wasn't about Ike and Tina. It was about Tina Turner. Yeah. And as a result of this, her relationship with Ike was as tumultuous as ever. But now he would openly bring his girlfriends on tour to their home and even had a couple of them join the show as an Iket, which is what they called the backup singers and dancers. They were the Iket's. Like, even girls who couldn't sing or dance, if he was having an affair with them, he would put them in the show so they could go on tour. And this was incredibly hurtful, obviously, and incredibly humiliating for Tina. So at this point in their marriage, Tina realized that she no longer loved Ike, but she also didn't know how to leave him. The physical abuse and control Ike inflicted on Tina had started to get much worse since Ike had discovered cocaine. Tina was so depressed about the state of her marriage and life that when she found out that one of the Iquettes, a woman named Ann Thomas, who incidentally had been described as somebody who could have been Tina's twin, was pregnant with Ike's baby. That was it. The abuse had gotten so bad and the humiliation so deep that Tina decided that she wanted to die. In an excerpt from I, Tina, she described, and this is a quote from her book, Ike was beating me with phones, with shoes, with the wire hangers, choking me, punching me. It wasn't just slapping anymore. One time right before a show, he punched me in the face and broke my jaw. I had to go on and sing anyway, with the blood just gushing in my mouth. I felt like I could not take it anymore. So that's end quote. So Tina took herself to her doctor and told him that she was having trouble sleeping. And she walked out of his office with 50 pills of the strongest Valium that you could get your hands on. That night, the Ike and Tina Turner Review had a gig at a brand new club in L.A. And as Tina was packing up her things for the show, she went into the bathroom and she took all 50 pills. So a woman named Rhonda Graham, who was basically like the band's money lady, she would stand at the door and count the number of people who came in, make sure they got paid the correct amount. Um, She was the first person to notice that something was wrong with Tina at the show that night. She went into the dressing room and noticed that Tina was applying her eyeliner, but she was starting to, like, draw it all the way down the side of her face. Like, she, she clearly was not in control of her hands or knew what she was doing. And after asking her repeatedly what was going on, Tina admitted that she had taken some sleeping pills. Then Ike showed up. There was no way that Tina was going on stage that night and um, clearly was in distress and was probably going to die. So they immediately uh, put her in the car um, and drove to the nearest ER. At the ER, they pumped her stomach, but they could not immediately find a pulse. The doctor came out to talk to Ike and he asked to go in and speak to Tina. Later, and it's not funny, but later, Tina would joke that he probably said if she didn't come back to life, he was gonna freaking kill her. And that's how powerful her fear of Ike had become. Um, sorry. That's fucking bullshit. Yeah. So like she was so scared of him that her pulse restarted when he was threatening her when she was basically dead. Um, 
And uh, Rhonda Graham actually also noted that the fact that Tina took the pills but then went to the show because there was like a clause in their contract that if Tina went on stage, even if she collapsed one minute after going on stage, they would still get paid. And so she was still trying to make it on stage to make sure that he could get paid for the gig because that is like how far under his control and how scared of him she was. Um, So... It was after she woke up in the hospital, realized she wasn't dead because Ike was in the room with her, and then he just went off, that Tina Turner realized that she hated Ike. So it went from loving him to, or thinking she loved him, to realizing she was not in love with him anymore, and now she hated him. And that hate was going to be a powerful tool for her. So the Ike and Tina Turner Review, so their band, were up and down when it came to like chart-topping hits over the years. They would be down, they'd go years without a hit, and then they'd have a year with like 10 hits. And in 1971, they released Proud Mary, which would go on to be their very biggest hit of all time. And so now we've moved into the 70s. And then so wait, 19- how, long, how long since she tried to kill herself? What, what, what year was it when she tried to kill herself? Oh, man, I don't, I don't know if I wrote down the year, but I think it was basically like late six, like 68, 69. Okay. And then by 71, they have their biggest hit ever. But she is also becoming like a big star in her own right, which is creating tension. Like people want Tina. They don't necessarily want Ike and Tina. Right. But he is still, you know, makes all the money. Everything she does goes to him. Um, but she now has this like palpable hatred for who he is and what he does to her, what he does to her family, what he does to the women that he takes to bed because he's equally abusive with all of his mistresses. So in the 70s, Tina is introduced to um, chanting, which is a part of the Buddhist religion. It's basically a prayer you repeat over and over again. There are beads. And she started practicing it daily in secret. And Ike, at the same time, was becoming more and more erratic as his cocaine habit was spiraling out of control. So she's still going to stay with him. This is in, like, 1970, 1971 that this is brought to her. And uh, by 1976, Tina knew that she was getting out. And something that I thought was a beautiful aspect of who this woman was. So throughout all this time, she's learning you know, Buddhist practices. She's really trying to, like, go deep within herself to find her own strength. She's finding success independently between the River Deep Mountain High. She gets cast in um, the Tommy, the Who's Tommy, as the Mm -hmm. Acid Queen, and she's, like, a smash success. She gets rave reviews, and everything she does when she steps away from the Ike and Tina turns to gold, but she is still very much tied to him. He's got complete control over her financially, But she starts getting, like, little ways of going out on her own. So finally, when they started touring in Europe, he would let her go shopping without him. And she would always say she was going shopping, but she never went shopping. She would go to tarot card readers. And she went to so many of them over the years that, and they were never the same ones, that would repeatedly say, you are going to be one of the biggest stars. And the the force that is holding you back, holding you down, and hurting you is going to fall away like a leaf from a tree. And she just held on to that and continued to seek out these people, 
to get advice, to continue to feel strength and know that her future was, was meant to be Ike free and was going to be even better than the success that she was already finding. So it's 1976 and the band was on tour. It had been a while since they'd had any major hits and there was a stop on their tour in Dallas and they landed in Dallas, they got in the car and Ike started looking at Tina in that way that she knew meant that trouble was coming. But this time she didn't back down. She fought back. As Ike beat her up badly on the drive to the Hilton where their gig was, she was screaming at him. She was hitting back. She even admits that she was actually egging him on a little bit, like make this so bad that we can't hide it from the world. So when Was they someone arri- driving? Was there like a driver? Yeah, but Ike had like all these like dudes in his employee that were always coked up and like, you know, were on, they were on his payroll. They were never going to come right. to her aid. So when they arrived at the Hilton Hotel, which is where their gig was, Tina, who had been wearing a white, an all-white suit, was covered in blood, and her eye was swollen shut. They check into the room, and Tina proceeds to go along with their usual, like, post-fight ritual. So Ike throws himself on the bed face down, and Tina starts to comfort him, asks him if she can get him any food, and then she starts to rub his back. And she keeps massaging his back, And she doesn't stop until that telltale snore escapes his lips and she knows he's asleep. And then she gets ready. She throws on sunglasses, throws her wig on the floor, wraps a scarf around her head, and grabs a small bag that has nothing but toiletries. And she slips out of the room. Afraid one of Ike's guys is going to see her in the lobby, she slips out the back of the hotel and she starts running. And she doesn't stop until she arrives at her Amada Inn. So, as I mentioned before, Ike had complete control over Tina, including finances. She didn't even get, like, a weekly allowance. He would spend money on her, but she was never allowed to have money. So she gets to this hotel, and she has nothing. She has no cash. I think she said she had 36 cents in her purse. Like a quarter, a nickel, a dime, and a penny. And that's not 36 cents, so I got that wrong. But she has 36 (laughs) cents in her purse, and... She basically asks to speak to the manager of the Ramada, comes over, she removes her sunglasses, and she says to him, and this is another kind of quote from her book, I'm Tina Turner, and I've had a really bad fight with my husband. I don't have any money, but I promise I'm going to pay you back if you can just help me get a room. The manager took one look at her bloody white suit and her swollen face, and he put her in the nicest suite in the hotel. Tina had finally escaped. It was not going to be completely easy, She got a divorce lawyer. She went into hiding. He was constantly looking at her, like looking for her, but she finally managed to extricate herself from him. And all it cost her was everything she had ever created with him, pretty much. She got to keep two cars and her name, and he got everything else. And then I'm going to pass it over to you because it just gets good now. Right, and he, um, back back when he first named her tina turner he like patented or whatever that's trademarked her name trademarked the name tina turner right so that other women could could play that role yeah and that she would never leave him i mean it's so crazy i was looking i was watching an interview with actually Lawrence fishburne and angela bassett on the making of the um movie what's love got to do with it 
And Lawrence Fishburne was saying, you know, I wanted to create this character who was a three-dimensional person who, um, you know, has all the aspects of a norm of a actual human being because otherwise why would she stay with this guy like why you know because when I hear the story I'm like what the f like I, I understand I understand but also I under also understand Lorena Bobbitt who cut somebody's dick off like yeah. you know because I would be like no fucking way I mean well, I will die yeah. fighting someone off Right, like you, we all we all believe that maybe, like if, maybe if I anybody though. right if anybody ever put their hands on me, that would be it. I would be gone. Yeah. But yeah. we all know that like one life isn't that simple, and she was of not course. in a position. She had children, she had no access to money, and then also she was terrified. And yeah. then another thing that I didn't really get into because the book and I pretty I didn't read the whole thing because I knew you were gonna do the like aftermath, like after she mm. got away and. and what a beautiful success her life is going to turn into. But so I'd stopped kind of when I got to the end of when she got away, but she, he is described by everyone who ever knew him as incredibly charming and, right. and smart and talented. And, and people wanted to be around him. There's a reason that he never had trouble finding like 40 women who wanted to be sleeping with him and his wife didn't right. leave him still, you know, like he had, yeah. there was something that he obviously possessed that could get yeah. you in and get you to the point of being trapped. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So after her escape, according this is according to biography.com, she used her Buddhist practice, like you said, to help center herself. Um, and she, so yes, she, she only had her name. She had two cars, which is amazing. I also was wondering about the kids because I know she had her own two kids with, I think him. One was maybe with a saxophonist from the same I think um, one was with him and one was with um, Raymond Hill, the saxophone player. Mm -hmm. That was before and, she was ever with him. And then she also adopted his two other kids from Lorraine. Yeah. I just also their upbringing. I'm like, damn, it just seems very intense. Um, but anyways, so she Tina, she steadily performed in smaller venues, venue, venues, venues, while also finding herself uh, in debt, you know, but she worked her ass off. She made some key networking moves and signed with manager Ron Davies who, and she joined like Capital EMI records. So one of the biggest comebacks for her was, and, and he's, he says that it was, he was taking a big risk, which I'm like, no, you weren't bitch. Like she's amazing. Are you kidding me? Like fuck off. She's amazing. Whatever. You were lucky but, to get her. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, in her mid-40s, she goes um, and does uh, Private Dancer, that album. And it's it's great. She does a remake of Al Green's Let's Stay Together, Better Be Good to Me, and What's Love Got to Do With It, and the Grammy Award-winning What's, What's Love. Anyways, it reached number one in the U.S., and it's basically her trademark song, right? Mm -hmm. I just love her so much. She's she's thriving. She's doing um she's coming back, you know. That's the other thing I remember the Davies guy, her Roger Davies says, you know, you're old. You're like you know, cuz she wanted to sing rock. She wanted to sing rock, sing right. rock. Because all of her influences were always like sort of in that genre. She loved Ray Charles. Um and he's like, yeah, rock is a young person's game. But she did not, she, you know, she had an a artistic vision and she 
pushed and went with it. Um, and so. also, there's a reason they cast Angela Bassett to play Tina Turner. Exactly. Like, there's a reason they cast, like, a beautiful, gorgeous, sexy, like, built, like, a, I don't know, a fucking Greek goddess actress to yeah. portray Tina. Because there's nothing about 40-year-old Tina Turner that was, like, too old to be sexy. I mean, exactly. Also, I'm 40, Men so suck suck so many times that I that I read about things. Yeah, I know. Um, Angela Bassett in this movie, you guys, I did see the movie. She's so good in it. Go see this movie. Do it. Go. Go. You know what's crazy? I actually have never seen the movie. So I spent all of whatever oh year God. in elementary school that it came out begging my mom to let me watch it. She was like, no, no, you're too young. And she was right. I was too young. And then somehow now I'm in my like mid late thirties and I've still yet to actually watch the movie. Do it tonight. I think that's it's calling. I your might name. just do it. Yeah, I read the um, book the movie was based on, so now I got to watch the movie. Yeah. So for our Patreon um, patrons, we will talk about the movie with you, babies. I love you. Um, yes. So Tina said that she never she never actually watched that film, and it's an entirety because you know it's based on her book or. It's she it's it's painful, you know, it's painful. Um, so that's kind of I mean, we could go on to to say she, you know, is now a Swiss citizen. She married a man um, of Swiss descent. And in 2013, I want to say or 2017, she became a Swiss citizen and she's loving they, her life over there. Yeah, I think they married in 2013. Oh, yeah. They married in 2013. And maybe by 2017. She yeah. was a Swiss citizen. And but she's retired, right? She's retired. And apparently she hasn't been in the greatest health. Like she has high blood pressure. Three weeks after she got married, she had a stroke and had to learn to teach herself how to walk again. But she did it. And at some point, her kidneys were failing her and they couldn't find a match or a donor. Um, and so she joined this in, Sw in Switzerland. They have assisted suicide. You know, um, so there's a there's a group called Exit. It's the um, yeah. But her husband gave a kidney and it was a match. And so she's still ticking and they're still loving each other. And she's in a safe place and not getting beaten since 1977. Right. Yeah. It's such a I love the story so much about how she had become such a star as part of this duo. You know, Ike and Tina Turner were called, I think it was Rolling Stone magazine. They were named like the number two greatest musical duo of all time. Like that is how great their influence was wow. as a couple musically. Mm. So then when she left him, not only did she not ever see any money from all of that work she had spent almost two decades of her life doing. Right. But she managed to then start over from scratch with her own identity just so you know, Ike and Tina never had a number one hit. They made yeah. it all the way to number two. But Tina Turner comes out with her own stuff, and she makes it to number one no problem. Yeah. And she has this beautiful career, and she is this icon. And then she finds love later in life, love that, you know, from what I was reading, you know, was what she'd always thought love and marriage was supposed to feel like. And then I feel like he proved it to her over and over again by, like, here's my kidney. Yeah. Like, let's 
let's go live by a lake and just enjoy looking out at the beautiful lake and you don't have to work if you don't want to. And mm. she, she finally got to just like say, I did my work, I did my music. And now she mm -hmm. is just living her best life, even if health isn't great. She's in her 80s. I feel like most people in their 80s wouldn't be like, I'm in perfect health. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So and then on the other side of the coin, we got Ike and he he was a really bad drug addict, basically. You know, cocaine is a very addictive thing, man. So you got to be careful with that stuff. Also, I guess when he was 59 years old, he was diagnosed uh, with a bipolar disorder. So that could have been something that uh, also... Mm -hmm added to some of the you know rage certainly slash, you know ike released his own autobiography autobiography called taken back my name the confessions of ike turner it was in 1999 he earned another grammy in the category of best traditional blues album for his 2006 set rising with the blues having worked with an alternative pop act gorillas the previous year previous year do you remember the gorillas? They always had the... Um, I do. Yeah. But actually in 2007, he died from a cocaine overdose. So he's he'd been doing cocaine for 40 years. Wow. Right. I feel like I read that he had actually gotten clean right around like when he started to find success again, like when he won that the Grammy oh. and stuff. He had gone and he'd gotten... He was like really badly addicted to cocaine for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Finally got clean, but then in 2004, he relapsed, and three years after his relapse, he died of an overdose. So, yeah. how was it, demon? A... He was never fully to shake, yeah. Yeah. I just, it's really hard for me to see him as a full three-dimensional person because, I don't know, how could you hurt another person? Because basically right. they were saying, like, after she, he would beat her, he would basically rape her. It Every reminds, time, yeah. Yeah. I would just cut his dick off. I'm sorry. Lorena I don't want to end it on what that, she was doing. Well, no, we won't end it on that. But I do think there's something to be said, too, for the fact that – and I didn't go into it because I knew that if I did, this would be – this would have to be a multi-part podcast. Yes. But for every, you know, mistress that Ike flaunted in front of Tina over the course of their marriage, that mistress ended up being good friends with Tina because they were all victims. Yeah. So, like, even when she would hate one of them – initially obviously for being like why are you being so comfortable like having sex with my husband right in front of me like how disrespectful but they were all being treated the same way they were all being controlled in the same way and some of those women ended up at the time being her closest friends because they were yeah. the only people that understood and so this was just a serial predator that had mm. too much power too much money then added drugs to the mix drugs that if you're somebody that's already violent by nature is just gonna yeah. skyrocket that shit so yeah yeah it's a bad situation it. but tina turner is a fucking she's so great rock star uh, i just love her so much she has so much she's just beautiful in so many ways and what a performer yes her, i think maybe that's it she's she considers herself a performer first and a singer second and that just gives me life, life. yeah she gives you all of it not, I mean, she's got the greatest voice, but that is not the only thing that people take away from watching Tina Turner. That's right. There's the, the, the incredibly, like, energetic physical display of, like, 
dance, costume, wigs, all yes. of it. There's that amazing voice. And then there's just the showmanship. She's so good. I love her so much. I know. I know. Thank you, Tina Turner. I'm glad you're alive. And I'm sure you're listening to this podcast. So we love you, girl. We love you, <laughs> Tina. Thank you for listening. <laughs> um, but we would also like to thank our page, our new Patreon members. Um, this week's net members are Jess Thorson. I love you, lady. And love second you. member... Sylvia Hall. What's up, girl? Love you, you Sylvia. We just so appreciate it. And we are um, very committed to bringing some exclusive content. Can't wait for more Patreon subscribers. Just go to patreon.com slash romcrime and choose a level to join. We're going to bring you the fun. So much fun. (laughs) we We have some really awesome stuff in the works. There is pillow talk there is there are tote bags there's maybe a music video in your future who knows there you definitely have to sign is. up to find out there's definitely a music video in your future <laughs> oh you're gonna like it guys i appreciate it i hope you guys have a safe and healthy week ahead of you we are here to entertain but we're also here to just alle- alleviate some of the energy that's out there in the world so we love you black lives we matter do. guys Black Lives Matter. And then I wanted to say one more thing, Vanya. If anybody, who's been, if anybody who's been listening to this episode is suffering from domestic violence or knows somebody that is, there are resources available to you. And I just wanted to make that information available right now in case listening to this has made you realize that you're in a situation that's bad or someone you know is in a situation that's bad. So you can call 1-800-799-7233. That's the domestic violence hotline. Or you can visit the hotline.org and they've got all kinds of protections in place if you feel like you're being monitored on your computer. So that again is 1-800-799-7233 or the hotline.org. And we love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll uh, chat with you next week. All right. See you next week. Mm-hmm.